I thought I'd start by giving you a little peek into our family's life at this precise moment in time, because I was thinking yesterday of how in our family, every single member of our immediate family is in one of the major life stage transitions right now. For example, our youngest son, David, and his fiancée, Anna Catherine, are getting married in two weeks. Can you believe that? So stoked for them. They just found their first apartment in San Jose. They're paying $15,000 a month rent or something like that. That's insane. But as you can see, this was yesterday they started moving boxes over to their uh, apartment in San Jose. So they are at square one, right? They're at the starting life together honeymoon phase. Now, our middle child, Elizabeth, just graduated with her master's, and just this past Wednesday, she started a brand new job at a brand new startup company in a brand new career field, and her husband, Jordan, also just finished his master's this year, so he is launching a brand new ministry to youth in Redwood City. So they're both at the next stage, which is launching new careers together. So that's our youngest, our middle, and our oldest, Jonathan and his wife, Kelly. They are doing the first big remodel on their home as new homeowners. And they happen to have two little ones that you may have heard about, Freddie and Danny, too. And Freddie just had his third birthday yesterday. So they are in their next phase, which is building their little nest together. And Laurie and I, in two weeks, will be empty nesters. Yes. As all of these... As all of these characters have now moved out, so we are starting that brand new phase of our existence. And by the way, Lori's mom, June, she just moved into a senior living complex, and she told us, I really believe that this, Lord willing, will be my final move. And so that's also a new phase for her. So every single one of us is starting a new phase, right? And so I realized yesterday that consequently... Basically, all that we have been talking about for about the last two or three months of our lives, because this is literally, we are all doing this simultaneously. Within a space of three or four weeks, we are all going into these new phases. So all we've been talking about around our house, like 100% of our conversation has been about our plans for the immediate future about our plans for the move, about our plans for the wedding, about our plans for launching the new career, about our plans for the remodel, about our plans for the birthday parties. And that means that the verses that we are going to study today in the book of James are rivetingly relevant for our family because these are verses that are precisely about how to plan for the next new phase in your life. So I've just been like, I, I can't stop reading these verses and studying these verses. Now that's us. But what about you? What are your plans? What are you looking forward to? For some of you, it's, man, I can't wait to graduate. I want to graduate, got one or two more years to go. Or I'd like to get married. Or we're married, we'd like to have kids. Or we would like to buy a home. For others, it's raising our kids to be good, godly citizens. Or we want to downsize because now we're empty nesters. For some of you, it's I, I need to grow my career or grow my own business or I'd like to retire. For many people here, it's I need to help my parents as they're sick, they need help. These are all major phases of life and whatever phase of life you're in right now, and I probably miss many of them, you're probably making plans. 
Making plans for the future is really part of being human. We make plans. We make plans for lunch. We make plans for vacation. Well, the Bible says there are four common yet major mistakes when it comes to planning for your future that almost everyone makes. They're sneaky, but almost everybody makes these mistakes because we don't see the big picture. And that's what James is going to help us with in the Bible verses we look at today. Grab your message notes that look like this. Everyday Sacred is our name for our verse-by-verse summer series in the book of James. This is a book of the Bible all about how to take your faith and apply it to your gritty daily life, right? And there could not be a more practical passage in the book of James than the one we're going to look at today, making your plans sacred, bringing the sacred, bringing what you say you believe into your everyday plans for your family, for your future, for your business. And James says you got to be aware of these four classic mistakes. And he's going to illustrate these mistakes with an imaginary conversation between two people. So to make it 21st century Silicon Valley area, let's say one of them has his MBA from Stanford and the other one's the CEO of a Silicon Valley startup, and they are talking. They're discussing their plans for the future. And in James chapter 4, verse 13, we drop into their conversation. James says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town. We will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Now, let's stop right there because, excuse me, James is going to start critiquing these two fellows who are having this conversation. And my question when I first read this at first glance is what is so wrong with what they just said? These are two guys who are entrepreneurs, uh, two people who are entrepreneurs. They've got business plans. What's the problem with what they're saying? What is James so upset about? I mean, just think about this for a second. I mean, people around here have this kind of conversation all the time. So what is the big deal? We have this kind of conversation about ministry. We have this conversation about business. We have this kind of conversation about vacation. What, What is he trying to make sure we avoid Well, James is going to go on and critique not really what these two people say, but he's going to critique sort of an underlying attitude that can end up biting you in the end. But it doesn't have to. If you stay aware of these four common mistakes that are very subtle, almost unspoken mistakes, when it comes to planning for the future. There's three things that I overestimate, and there's one thing that I tend to overlook. So jot these down. These are really going to help you in your life and in mine. Mistake number one is this. I overestimate my control, right? I overestimate the power that I have to influence outcomes, Let me ask for a show of hands. How many of you have discovered yet that most things in your life are actually out of your control? Has anybody discovered this yet, right? You can't control the weather. You can't control how your kids are going to behave. You can't control what other people think about you. You can't control the economy. You can't control the business climate. You can't control most things. Like James says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? 
let alone a year from now. Now, what is he saying about planning? What's the point? Let me put it this way. As you probably know, this weekend, it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. How many of you remember exactly where you were when this happened? Fascinating how fast time flies, right? Well, when JFK said in 1961, we will send a man to the moon. Think about this. We didn't have the equipment. We didn't have the expertise. We didn't have the rockets. We didn't have the computers. We, didn't know, we had no idea how to do it. And yet it happened just eight years later. Footprints on the moon. So really, the Apollo program is such a, a, an example of planning well for the future, right? So I asked myself, what did the Apollo program teach us about planning? Well, many articles about it make this same point, but I specifically found an article by a professional project manager named Emily Bonney, and she says, one big lesson is this, planning is important but don't be afraid to modify the plan on the fly. And she gives this example. You might know that on the descent to the landing site, the computer that was in the lunar landing module got overloaded. And in these critical, here they've gotten all the way to the moon. They're flying down to the surface of the moon. They've got 60 seconds left. And in that critical 60 seconds, the computer kept shutting down, kept rebooting, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times in a row, it kept shutting down and rebooting because it was overloaded right in the middle of the landing sequence. And so Neil Armstrong had to take manual control of the lunar module and just kind of navigate it with the thrusters himself while Buzz Aldrin, his co-pilot, verbally fed him altitude and speed data that he was just reading because everything, everything was broken. Everything shut down. And they landed on the moon's surface with just 25 seconds worth of fuel left. It was basically like you and a friend trying to dock your motorboat at the gas station in the harbor. That's, a, that's what they, after all the computer simulations, that's what it what came down to. But if they hadn't adjusted, hadn't acted, hadn't been flexible, if they would have just stuck to the plan, this is what we planned for, this is what we trained for, it could have been a disaster. So she says, remember, even, watch this, even the most well-thought-out project plans will need to be altered because circumstances change, new opportunities arise. She says, don't be so rigid in your planning that you fail to adapt when you need to. Well, at one very basic level, this is what James is saying here. He's saying you just don't no. And so you've got to stay flexible. You've got to adjust. Don't say, here is what's going to happen. Absolutely. Like you can foretell the future. Now, I want to ask you a question because this is an area where I got messed up when I was younger. Is James saying, therefore, it is wrong to make plans? Is that what he's saying? I'll ask you the question. Is planning ahead wrong? Yes or no? No. The Bible talks a ton about planning. Here's just three verses. Proverbs 14.8, the wise man looks ahead. Or Proverbs 16.1, we can make our plans. Or Proverbs 16.8, we should make plans. So it's wise, we can do it, we should do it. But then the second half of these verses always says something like, counting on God to direct us. And it's, it's not 
saying necessarily you're going to hear an audible voice or feel something, a quiver in your liver or something that you're going to go, okay, I better change my plans and do this. It's just saying he is just going to direct you. You can count on it. You may not sense it. You may not think it. You may not know it until 10 years later. You look back and you go, I can totally see how God was directing my steps the whole time because I wanted to go this way and then those doors closed and I ended up going this way. Now I can see in retrospect how God was moving all the chess pieces, even though I didn't sense it at the time. This is what he's saying. Go ahead and plan, counting on the fact that God is sovereign and he will direct you because you are not in control of so many factors, but God is. So the solution, James says, I need to remember the Lord of my life. Remember who is Lord. Like we talked about last weekend, remember, God not. Do that with me one more time. God, not. James is continuing that train of thought. So James says, what you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. And there's lots of examples of this in the Bible. For example, in Acts chapter 18, the believers in one city beg the apostle Paul to stay with them. And he says he's going to leave, but he says, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Here's what I want to do, Lord willing. Now, here's the problem. This phrase, Lord willing, say that out loud with me. Lord willing. That can become kind of a Christian cliche, right? Lord willing. For a lot of people, and this is, I want to address this because this is where I was at sort of as a teenager and a young adult. This gets thrown out there almost like a magic phrase almost like a superstition, and not just in Christianity, in other religions too. Like I better say, you know, if God wills or Lord willing, or there might be a lightning bolt coming down from heaven or something. And maybe you knew somebody who was super religious and they just threw this out all the time and it drove you crazy, right? Just ending every other sentence, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing, you're at dinner and hey, can you pass the salad? Well, Lord willing, I'll get that salad passed to you. Lord willing, I won't stab you with my fork for saying Lord willing all the time, right? So I want to clarify this. You don't, James is not saying you need to say this out loud all the time. The Lord willing attitude shouldn't be a superstition, but a conviction. Does that make sense? You don't need to say Lord willing to keep God from zapping you or to to get God to bless your plans because you're saying this magic phrase. But it has to be a conviction deep in your, deep in your heart. What, what James is saying is you have this conviction. I have sought wise counsel. I have prayed about this. I believe to the best of my understanding that what I'm planning on doing here is right on the side of the Lord. But I could be wrong. And so I give God, I consciously give God carte blanche to change my plans at any time His will is best. I believe his will is best for the world, best for me, best for the kingdom of God. And so whatever he wants, that's what I want to. James is talking about that attitude in your heart. Now, watch this. Different people need to apply this in different ways. So I want to do kind of a personality test here, all right? There's lots of different personalities that human beings have, but there's two big ways that you can differentiate people. One is this. Some of you have a driver 
personality, okay? That means you're take charge people, you're get things done people, you are planners, you go on vacation and every moment is planned. You go to Disneyland, you're like, at 8.53 a.m. we will be in line for Space Mountain, synchronize your watches, family, right? That, if that's you, raise your hand. You are a driver, you're a go-getter, lots of drivers here today. Okay, for driver personalities, the Lord willing, God is sovereign attitude leads you to humility where you hold your plans not, not in a closed hand, but in an open hand, because you're consciously saying, these are my plans, but God can change these plans anytime he wants to. I don't know about you, but I always cringe when I hear pastors or Christian leaders of other ministries say things like, God spoke to us and God told us to do this. We really sense the Lord's calling this direction. We really believe God is directing us this way, and this is God's will, and then God changes the circumstances, and now they're stuck. Because it's like, well, do I lose credibility by saying, uh, we're going to change the plan that I said was God's plan, or do we march forward anyway because I told them this was God's plan? The way to avoid that trap is humility. You say, for example, in a, in a building campaign like we are in right now for the 2020 vision, building the College Ministry Center and Coffeehouse, you say, we think that this is best, but the Lord can change his plan for us however he wants to. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be changing our plans for that. We, we are, the doors are opening, right? But as of now, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going because we believe this is the right thing to do, yet we're totally flexible and open to God changing direction, right? Humility. Okay, now, here's the next personality type. How many of you tend to be more cautious? And you're almost like, I love this verse because I hate planning. I hate making decisions. You go on vacation and nothing is planned. You're just totally go with the flow. And you're like, yay, an anti-planning verse. Finally, I don't like plans. I don't like schedules. I don't believe in budgets. I don't believe in plans. Yay. Raise your hand if that's you. You know what's funny is we actually had more, I would say, enthusiastic drivers, which is the driver personality, right? The drivers are like, you're asking me to raise my hand? Yes, something to do! And the, the cautious people are like, I, I don't know, am I? I okay. No. Yes, no. Well, what this is saying for you is that you can make plans with confidence when it comes to decision-making. See, because maybe you think, I don't want to you know, say, the Lord told me, because I could be wrong, right? I've been wrong lots of times. So how can I ever make a decision and confidently say, this is God's will? And since I can't do that, like driver types seem to be able to do, then I guess I can't move forward. Well, what this allows you to have is confidence, because you don't need to say, I know exactly what to do. You don't have to ever say that. But you can move forward with life because you can say, you know what? I think this is right. And if it's not, I'm inviting the Lord to redirect my steps totally. So more humility for the confident and more confidence for the humble. Isn't that great? That's what it means to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Now, I wanted to spend most of my time on this first point. I overestimate the control I have over outcomes because that's so huge. But there's three more things on this list. And mistake number two is this. I overestimate my time, the time I have to make a difference. 
James says, your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. Or in the case of Santa Cruz in July, it's here, and then it's still here, right? (laughs) James is saying two things. Life is so unpredictable, first of all. And secondly, life is so brief for every one of us. You know, look at the screen. To describe human lifespans. Do a word study on this sometime in the Bible. And look at the word pictures the Bible uses to describe your life and my life. Here's some of the imagery in the Bible. The Bible talks about us being like a leaf that falls, or like grass that withers, or dew that evaporates, or a shadow, or a cloud, or a vapor. And it's so healthy to see that. And it doesn't have to be morbid, it's just being realistic. I'll never forget, I heard Dan Patrick, the famous sportscaster, And he was talking about an injured player once, and he says, he's listed as day-to-day, but then aren't we all? And I thought, that is so good! We're all just day-to-day! And you might have heard this past May, he disclosed his own uh, very major health issues, and maybe that's why he said this. This was on his mind. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow, says James. And so the solution is not to worry about that, not to stress about it. It's just to remember the brevity of life. This week, an app called FaceApp went viral. You might have heard about it. You put in your face, and you get to see what you'd look like when you're old, right? Well, I love that celebrities like Steph Curry did it, and he's still got his mouth guard in, even though he's old. Clay Thompson did this, Uh, LeBron James did this, and posted a picture of himself. But I think all this is a good reminder, one day that's going to be me, right? And you. Maybe you're there right now. And again, don't let that depress you. It means value each day as a precious gift. Because you and your friends and family will never be this way. The way you are today, you will never be again. You won't be this way tomorrow. You know, Moses wrote one psalm that we know of, Psalm 90. And in one of the verses, he says, in fact, let's read this out loud together. Would you read Psalm 90, verse 12 with me? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This week, I decided to literally do this. Number my days. And I Googled it. There's a bunch of websites that will tell you your life estimate right? And uh, it started out pretty encouraging. I am not making this up. I did this on Thursday, and this is the order that I actually went in. I went onto the John Hancock Insurance Company site. You enter all your medical data and so on, and they said I'd live to be 95. So I felt pretty good about that, but it went downhill from there. (laughs) Next site I checked said I'd live to be 88, so within about 10 seconds, I lost seven years. The next site said 78, And in fact, it projected my exact date of death would be Monday, May 9th, 2039. (laughs) Less than 20 years from now. Then the next site said, you have 11 years, 10 months, 2 days, 21 hours, 15 minutes, and 9 seconds left. And the next said, I die on Friday, March 28th, 2025, less than 5 years from now. So at that point, I stopped checking sites. Because clearly checking longevity sites is bad for my health, right? My numbers kept going down. I was worried that the next one would say, congratulations, you're going today, my friend. 
I just stopped. But the point is, my days left do have a number. And it's not this, it's not infinity. Not my life here on earth. On this earth. And it's important to keep that in mind. So healthy, actually, so encouraging to acknowledge this because it's when I live with some sense that quantities are limited for me and everybody I know that I actually remember to value every day. And I remember to pause and feel the sunshine on my skin and breathe in the ocean air and enjoy moments with my family. Because what's the opposite of this? Thinking, there's always going to be time to spend with my kids, with my family, my friends. Right now, I can't spend a lot of time with all these people because I'm just trying to make ends meet. But once we reach a certain economic level, then I'm going to spend more time with my kids, with my spouse, with my friends. But here is a problem. Somebody said this is the Silicon Valley syndrome. What starts out as a temporary condition becomes a permanent lifestyle. Because even when you get to a point where you could actually have some margin, you could work some margin into your schedule and spend some time with some of these people, you don't do it because by habit you are just in fully 100% work mode all the time and you can't relax anymore because that's how you've trained yourself to be. So this is why we deliberately have to do these mental exercises and kind of number our days and get a reality check. So try this as a mental exercise. If you knew you had only one week left, how would you spend it? Just think about that for a second. Almost all of us would say I'd spend more time with the family, right? Nobody would go, I would spend one more day with that beautiful, beautiful org chart where I'm just two boxes below the CEO. It's so beautiful. Nobody would do that, right? Even though that's what we seem to be striving for in our lives sometimes. We'd spend time with family. Okay, if you knew you only had one year left, how would you spend it? Spend more time with family and friends, right? Okay, if you knew you had only 10 years left, do you see what I'm getting at? Whatever the quantity is, it's limited. And being aware of that helps you be present, be there when you're with kids or your spouse or friends because those times are limited and you can never get them back. And so I overestimate my time. I overestimate my control. And the mistake number three is this, I overestimate my importance. I get this idea that I am so important and so indispensable. It was the famous French leader Charles de Gaulle who said, the graveyards are filled with indispensable people. Great quote. James says, acknowledge God in your daily life. Verse 16, otherwise you are boasting about your own pretentious plans. And all such boasting is evil. Okay, why is boasting, why is pride boasting about your own pretentious plans? Like this is the way it's going to go, come hell or high water, I got it all figured out. Why is that evil? Not because it's like on a list of sins. It's evil because it's destructive to yourself. It's self-destructive to do that. Why? Over and over, the Bible speaks against this kind of attitude, a pretentious, prideful attitude. It says things like, pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. 
So those are kind of your two choices in life, right? Humility now or humiliation later. And I choose humility now personally because pride sabotages your life. Another verse, Proverbs 13, 10. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. This is a fascinating verse because look at this. Pride leads to conflict, but it's, it's contrasting that attitude with those who take advice and are wise. You see what it's saying? Prideful people who think they, they've got it all worked out. Their plans are flawless. Don't you dare correct me. They don't take advice, and that leads to conflict. Why? Let's say you're trying to hang a picture at home, right? It's you and somebody else. You're working on a picture, and, and you say, you know what? I think you're hanging the picture a little bit too high. You're talking about a nail and a picture and a wall, but a prideful person's going to hear that as being about themselves, and they're going to say, don't you dare tell me how to hang a picture. I've been hanging pictures longer than you've been alive. I had a plan for this picture. I have a vision, and my vision is going to happen. And this is why pride is so dangerous when it comes to planning. Proud people have a very hard time taking advice. So, James says, don't think your own pretentious plans are flawless. Don't go, it's my way or the highway. I'm not going to take advice from somebody. You're not the center of the universe. You're not omniscient. The solution, James says, is to remember God. In other words, remember the context of your life. Remember your place in the universe. James says, who are you? And that's not, he's not putting you down. This isn't about putting yourself down. It's just about acknowledging I'm not the center of the universe. God's in the center. And at best, what I'm doing, when I'm living in harmony with reality, is I'm orbiting around the true center of the universe. God, the, the, the universe does not bend to my will, right? And this actually takes so much pressure off your shoulders. This helps so much when it comes to planning because it means you say, I don't have to have perfect plans. I don't, I don't have to pretend like I've got it all figured out. I'm completely humble and non-defensive and willing and able to take input. So James says, there are three things I overestimate. All human beings do when it comes to making plans in some degree or another. I overestimate my control, my time, and my importance. And, and you see how in context, we've been talking the last couple of weekends, James is in a series of verses where he's talking about pride and how pride versus humility lead to totally different outcomes in life. So three things I tend to overestimate. And finally, there's something I overlook. And this is mistake number four. I overlook my opportunities. Opportunities that God puts all around me for doing good. And here's how James wraps up this sequence of verses. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Now, what does this verse have to do with his train of thought where he's been talking about planning? Well, just this. You know you ought to fill in the blank, help somebody out, invite somebody over for dinner, give them a call, see how they're doing. And these are the types of things that fall to the bottom of the to-do list, and we always end up putting them off because we're so busy with other plans. And this is a major issue. Jesus said 
when it comes to following him, he said, anybody who lets himself be distracted from the work I plan for him is not fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying, he said the, made the same point in the parable of the sower and the seeds. We, we can have faith and yet then get distracted by the busyness of our plans. And we stick to our plan even when God's putting something else in our lives that day that's actually a ministry opportunity. Man, and I relate to this. I'm guilty of this all the time. Like Rick Warren, pastor in Southern California, says, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Right? So what's the solution? It's to remember the purpose of my life. I'm not just here. You're not just here to make a living. We're here to be ambassadors for God's kingdom. So let's, you know, take that neighbor some cookies, invite that friend over for dinner, invite those neighbors to church. This is, of all four points, this is the one that really, really, really convicts me because I can let the busyness of my plans drown out things that I know I should do just to spread God's love. And in case you're going, well, how do I know what God wants me to do? Here's a grid to put it through. Somebody said, here's an easy way to remember your purpose in life. The best use of time is to love, right? That's the greatest commandment. Love God, love people. And the best time to love is now. I love that. The best use of time is love, and the best time to love is now. And I want to tell you a story to illustrate this. This one really got me. I don't know if you saw this story a while back about two older folks named Ed and Florine Hale. More than 60 years ago, the two met at a party, and it was love at first sight. And when Ed went to Florine's parents to ask for her hand in marriage, they refused because Florine had a broken body and a broken heart. Her husband had perished in a car accident three months previous. She had been really injured severely herself. And she had been widowed only three months into her marriage to this man. So her parents said, we don't want her to be widowed twice. We don't want her heart to be broken again. And they were feeling very protective about Florine. But Ed wouldn't take no for an answer. And so he said, I promise you that as much as it depends on me. I will not abandon her. I will be there every day of her life. And I'm going to try, he said, to take care of my health to the point where I can have reasonable assurance that I'm going to outlive her because I don't want her to be widowed again either. So this was his plan, but he was open to God, you know, changing it, however. So recently, Ed had to be hospitalized with kidney failure. And Florine's health also took a turn for the worse. She was hospitalized with pneumonia, but in a different hospital 35 miles away. But Ed said, I promised I'd be there with her. And her pneumonia was getting really bad. And, and the hospital where Florine was hospitalized agreed to accept Ed only if he was strong enough to make the 35-mile ambulance trip. And as if by miracle, Ed rallied for the ride and the hospital prepared this room for the couple where two beds were pushed together so they could lie next to each other and hold hands as Florine faded away. And by the way, do you notice she's got a bow in her hair? You know, still wanted to look good for Ed. Well, Florine was pronounced dead the morning after Ed's arrival. 
at 82. And Ed said, I made it. He said, I got to walk her all the way home, as I promised. And Ed followed one day later. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's a man who got it. Who got it. That the best time to love is now because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. So he was like, I got to get to her bedside today. And it turned out for him, today was all he had with her. And so my question for you is, are you allowing your plans to take your time and your life energy from the people and the things that are really the most valuable? Now listen, I don't want you to leave discouraged. I want you to leave encouraged, right? I don't want you to just leave going, I just regret all those things that I didn't do. No, leave encouraged by all the cool stuff. You know, celebrate the things that are yet to be done in your life. It's exciting. And so the question that this passage begs is this, how can I make a difference and, and, and touch people's lives without the kind of arrogance that James is critiquing here, right? How can I have a plan, an agenda to make an impact without pride? Well, as always, look how Jesus did it. The Bible says, keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. Study how he did it. I mean, look, Jesus was the epitome of a strong, world-changing leader, right? And yet he did it in total humility, total submission to the Father. He had an absolute focused plan. He knew what he was about. Yet he still took days off. The Bible talks about it. He even took naps. The Bible talks about it. And even he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus isn't just our example. He's our Savior. When we realize that everything we have in life is by his grace, my salvation is a free gift by his grace, and and his continued love of me is not earned by my performance. It's all a gift of grace. And my ability to make plans and follow through on plans, that's all by his grace. Then workaholism is, is blunted. Then I don't live a life of performance orientation because I don't have to prove myself to anybody. It's all by grace. So how do I actually live like this? A man named Bob Pierce founded World Vision. That's a mission organization that helps hurting people all over the planet. He has literally saved millions of lives through his organization. Well, near the end of his life, people asked him, how, how is it that you have sort of the drive and the vision of like a Silicon Valley CEO, and yet everybody who meets you says you're the most godly, humble, peaceful man that they know? How, how, do, you, how do you account for that? And he said this. He said, early on, he learned to pray a very simple prayer. Lord, I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you like without informing me in advance. And he said that gave him permission to both be a driver, but to do it with total humility. I love that. And your life and mine will be more effective and peaceful 
if we learn to pray a prayer like that. The big idea today is this. Move forward trusting in God. Move forward. Don't be paralyzed by indecision that you're going to make a, an unwise choice. Move forward, but trusting in God, saying, God, I await your adjustment. I will stay flexible. So the question as we move into prayer is this, where do you need to move forward in your life? You can do it with confidence and humility. Some of you, the place you need to move forward is giving your life totally to God. You've been thinking maybe for months coming here to TLC, someday I'm going to give my life to the Lord. Why not today? None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. So would you bow in a word of prayer with me? Let's pray together. With our heads bowed, would you simply pray a prayer like Bob Pierce's in your heart? Lord, I just give you the right to change my agenda anytime you want without informing me in advance. So much power and so much peace to be found in that. When it comes to applying that to your career, your plans for your family, for vacation, everything. But with our heads still bowed, maybe you've never opened your life to Jesus Christ, or maybe you're not sure you have. Here's a chance to simply do what the Bible talks about and give your life to Christ and pray something like this in your heart. Lord, I want to acknowledge you as the center. I want you to be the leader, the boss, the Lord in my life. I want you to call the shots. I want to surrender totally to you. And so I ask you to come into my life. Help me to understand it more, what you did for me on the cross. But I submit myself to you today. And Lord, help us to realize that you hold the keys to the future. And when we realize that, that is the most peaceful place to live. In Jesus' name, amen.